Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks for spending part of your Sunday with us today. My name's Corey, and I have the honor and privilege of being the lead pastor here at GFC. And it's just great to be with you. It's great to continue our conversation called Confronting Christianity. If you haven't been a part of the conversation so far, this is week four. And so if you missed any of the weeks previously, you can go back and check that out on YouTube. You can listen to it on the podcast. And one of the things that we're doing over the course of our summer, we're spending nine weeks looking at nine of the most difficult questions a Christian could be asked or could be asked of Christianity. Some of you might be thinking this is summer. I don't want to think, but we've kind of flipped the script and said we're going to lean into some difficult questions. And so these questions that we're tackling and having a conversation about are some things that maybe would be difficult to answer if someone came and asked you this about your faith. They probably wouldn't be the simple answers. If somebody walked up to you and asked you this question, it wouldn't be so easy just to come up with an answer right off the top of your head. You might have to process and ask more questions and figure it out. And so what we're saying is we want to be able to address these questions and have a good answer for them or at least have a good process in answering them if someone were to ask them or if we were to ask them of ourselves. And one of the questions that we've gone to and, and had a conversation about at the beginning of each week is, is challenging our faith bad? Is it bad for us to challenge what we believe? Is it bad for us to lean in and ask difficult questions? And I would say the answer to that is absolutely not, that we should ask difficult questions. And if our faith can't stand up to difficult questions, then we probably shouldn't believe it. And so we want to lean in. We want to, when we have doubts, ask the difficult questions, try and find the answers, at least have the conversation with somebody. And so that's what we've been doing over the course of this, the last three weeks, this week, and then we've got five more coming up. And so this week's question that we're going to focus in on is, does religion hinder morality? Does religion hinder morality? Now that might seem like a weird question because in our culture, at least at some point, I think early on in my life and maybe in your life as well, Christians or at least people who were seen as religious were usually seen as good people. Like if you went to church, it was a virtuous thing to do. And maybe someone would look at you and think, oh, well, at least you go to church. So maybe you do have some sense of morality or right and wrong, or at least you try and live your life in a good way because you attach yourself to a certain faith. You may have even been in a situation where it was you or somebody else and you needed someone to watch your kids. There was an emergency and you need to send them somewhere. And so you said, who am I going to pick? Well, maybe they go to church, so maybe they would be more responsible. Or I need someone to keep an eye on my house. Who am I going to ask? Well, that person seems to have a good moral background. And so I'm going to talk to them about that. But at some point over the last, I don't know, decade or two, there has been a negative stigma that has come with being a Christian or being a Christ follower or being a religious person. And so what has happened maybe is if you were considered a Christian or you said you were a Christian, there would be automatically some things thought about you that would maybe be negative based on what you believe about certain political topics or how you see a certain issue in culture or how you might fall on one side of one argument. And so there's been a different lens that may be used to look at Christians over the last little while. And this is where this question comes from. And another way of maybe saying this question is, does Christianity do more or does religion do more harm than good? And some people would say that it would even be better for religion to just be erased from the face of the earth, that our problems would go away if religion just disappeared. And so what we're going to do today is have a conversation about that idea and see what Jesus has to say about it or what maybe is the problem underneath the problem 
within Christianity or within culture and kind of see what Scripture has to say about that. I want to start with a quote that kind of drives this point home or what people would see from the outside. It's from a man named Steven Weinberg. And Steven Weinberg was a 1999 Nobel Prize winning physicist. So he's a smart guy. He would say this, religion is an insult to human dignity. With or without religion, you would have good people doing good things and evil people doing evil things. But for good people to do evil things, it takes religion. So his stance would be, there's automatically going to be some good people, some bad people. But in order for the good people to turn bad, they're going to need some motivation, and that motivation is going to be rooted in religion. Now, I think that that's not actually a true statement, and we'll come back to that a little bit later. But I think this begs the question that maybe we've pondered at different times in our life. Maybe you've even sat around and had a conversation with people about it. And the question is, are humans inherently good or inherently bad? You can think about that for a second. Are Christians inherently good or inherently bad? Now, we might have, if we're Christ followers or we've brought up understanding Scripture, we might have a quick answer to that. And we're going to read some of that maybe from Scripture in a little bit. But for like, remove religion from the conversation for a minute. Do we think that people, human beings, are inherently good or inherently bad? Now, again, at some point in my life, I think there would have been many people that would say, oh, humans are inherently good. We will choose what's right most of the time. Most people are more good than bad. And maybe that's changed. Maybe people would see the world a little bit differently today. But I think at some point there would be this conversation. Maybe you've kicked it around and someone would land in a spot where they would say that humans are inherently good. We want what's positive. We will make the right choice more often than not. But let me give you an example. How hard is it not to eat your favorite dessert? How hard is it not to eat your favorite dessert? Let me give you an example. Right? This isn't a moral issue necessarily, but just go with me for a minute. Let's just say that you decided that you weren't going to eat sugar for a whole month. You know, beach days are coming, so you want to slim down a little bit. So you just say, I'm just going to cut sugar from my diet for a month and see what happens. And let's just say you chose your birthday month. I don't know why you would do that, but let's just say you did it. And your birthday comes, and you've been committed to this, and maybe you're even two weeks into it, and you know that you're on the right track and things are going well. And then your birthday comes. And somebody puts out your favorite dessert. For me, that favorite dessert, I'm not a huge cake person. I'm not a huge cupcake person. For me, that dessert is an ice cream cake from Dairy Queen. Okay? That's my, so if I decided to do this over my birthday, why would I make that stupid decision? But let's just say I did and my wife got that cake for me and she had it in front of me. How difficult would it be for me not to eat that favorite dessert? That's a difficult one. And the question, the reason I bring this up in the conversation about are we inherently good or inherently bad is not to say eating dessert is bad, but just to say, why is it so easy to do the thing we know we shouldn't do? It's the opposite of doing what's right all the time. And Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 7. That's where we're going to start our time in Scripture today. So if you want to turn there, you can open your Bible there. You can go on your phone. You can go to our website. Go to the Follow Along tab, and you'll get all the Scriptures, all the notes therefore you can even email notes to yourself and we will have the verses up on the screen for you so in romans chapter 7 paul is writing to the church in rome and starting in verse 15 he says this i don't really understand myself for i want to do 
what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Verses 16 and 17. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, it shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. Now, let's time out for a second because I don't want us to misunderstand that last phrase. He says, so I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. It doesn't. What Paul is saying is not that when we sin or we do something wrong, we just kind of like go like this and go, oh, just the sin nature. It's not really me. I don't have to take responsibility for it. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is we as people, as humans, as God's creations are good, right? God created us and said we are good. However, there is a sin nature that lives in us. And Paul is recognizing this and saying it causes us to do wrong. And in fact, Paul says, when I want to do what's right, when I know what I want to do, I can't do it. It's, I still continue to do the wrong thing. So let's go back to the food analogy. We would know in the situation where we're not eating sugar and we've been doing so good and we should stay away from it. We know what the good decision is. And we know what we want to choose to do. And yet it would be so difficult to choose it. Let's keep going in verse 18 of Romans 7. And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, verse 19, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Verse 20, but if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. He says, we're good creations of God. God, we, it's good. We reflect his image, but we have this problem where sin lives in us and we just can't stay away from it. Let me give you a few more examples of this that maybe you could identify with to help us understand what's going on. I will, maybe you said this, I will not eat that second donut. I have uh, some friends that I play hockey with and we have a text string that goes and, and every day or every couple of days we text about life and what's going on and we're all kind of in the same life stage. We all have kids that are about the same age. And so we just catch up every once in a while. And one of the things that would happen before COVID was I would be in the office or they would be in their office and someone would bring in donuts for the day. Now, this doesn't happen anymore, unfortunately, but this is what we would go through. And the conversation would start on our text string. How do I get that second donut without looking like the fat kid? Right? That's, that was the process. How do I go back? get a second, get a third without people realizing and recognizing what's going on. So we would text about this and like, what's your strategy, right? Do you wait till lunchtime and try and sneak one in your lunchbox so nobody knows, right? You know you're going to go for one. How does the second one happen? How easy is it to eat the second one? Again, same ideas as the cake analogy, but we say we're not going to eat the second one. We say we're not going to go back for more, but if they're just sitting there, I mean, someone's got to eat them. Some kid in Africa would love to have that, right? But we would need it. We need to have it. We need to have Another one. What about this one? I will get up early and work out tomorrow. Do you know there are whole books written about how to make this happen? They all talk about how to remove the obstacles that would stop you from getting out of bed the next morning. So they'll say, uh, maybe you need to wear the clothes that you're going to work out in to sleep in. So that when you get up, it's like you're going to get up and work out. You're going to have to shower afterward anyway. So you might as well wear those clothes. So you don't have to get up and change. You just roll out of bed and go. Make sure your car is full of gas. You don't have to stop at the gas station and that becomes an obstacle. Make sure your playlist is ready. Make sure it's all about the things that when, especially like if you're like me and you're not a morning person and your alarm goes off, 
What are all the things you're going to go through in your mind as reasons why you could stay in bed? And yet we know this is what we should do. We set the alarm the night before saying, this is a good thing for me to do. And yet when we wake up the next day, we don't want to do it. Maybe you can identify with this one. I will only watch one more episode. Becomes two, becomes three, going to bed at 11, becomes going to bed at 1.30, right? But there was a cliffhanger I have to know. So then it becomes one more episode. What about this one? I will save that money for retirement. Yeah, but there's this thing and it's really, it's on sale or, or it's a really good opportunity or whatever. Listen, none of these things that I even listed are moral issues necessarily. But the point is to show us that what we want is not exactly what's always what's best for us. And when we look at all of these situations, we know what we should do. We know what we could do. And yet the easy thing is to go the opposite direction and to do what we thought we shouldn't do or that we said we weren't going to do. Here's what I want us to understand about this idea of having to do with morality. If humans are inherently good, self-control would be easy because what we want would be what is best for us and others around us. Let me say this one more time because it's kind of wordy. If humans are inherently good, self-control would be easy because what we want would be what is best for us and others around us. See, when we ask this question about does religion hinder morality, the opposite side of that is to say that humans can rightfully define what morality is. We can rightfully define what is right and what is wrong. And in some cases, humans can do that. There are people who are not religious who can look at something and say that's wrong and that's right and they would be correct. However, when it comes down to it, humans at our hearts are inherently sinful. And so the argument that I would make today is that we can't actually always measure what is right and what is wrong based on human standards. And I think there's a bit of dichotomy that is created between culture and between what Paul teaches us. What, what culture might teach us is that humans are inherently good and yet evil exists. Think about it from this perspective. If humans were all inherently good, why would evil exist? Because some, maybe, had gone the wrong way, fell off the wagon, made bad decisions. But ultimately, more good would exist in the world if humans are inherently good. But what Paul teaches us is more of what we see that I think is true, that humans are inherently sinful, and yet good exists. So if we go that direction, if humans are inherently sinful and yet good exists, that says to me that there has to be some outside influence causing that good to happen or helping humans understand what good actually is. You know, if we go back to that quote that I gave you earlier about the idea that what it takes for good people to do wrong things is religion, I think is way oversimplified. And I think that we could come up with a pretty good list of things that would cause good people to do wrong things. And so I put a few of them together in a list that we could just kind of walk through together. The first thing I thought of was greed. People do bad things because we get greedy. We see success. We see what we could create. We see the amount of money that we have when we didn't have it before, and we get greedy wanting more. That can cause us to make bad decisions. We could do that for fame. We want part of the spotlight, which means somebody else has to not have part of the spotlight. And so we 
make poor decisions because of that. We have pride in who we are or being right and wrong or what people think about us. And so that can cause us to do wrong things. We could be looking for revenge. We could have been a quote-unquote good person and then we got hurt by somebody else. And so we decided out of revenge we were going to do something that was wrong. We get angry. And so in that situation, we just decide what uh, we decide to do something wrong because we get angry in a certain situation. And maybe even status causes us to make poor decisions. Now, here's what I'll say. There are plenty of situations in history, even today, where people will use religion or maybe even Christianity to chase these things. Chase greed, fame, status. And people have made bad decisions and done terrible things in the name of religion and even in the name of Christianity. But I would say also that there are plenty of reasons, and we could go on and even put more things on the list, of things that cause people to do wrong things. And for some of us, it's different than others. What causes you to sin might be different than what causes me to sin. It's all a temptation, but sometimes we have different things that cause us to sin more quickly. It's not necessarily religion. It's just this idea that we as humans are flawed. And no human can perfectly understand what right and wrong is. This idea was not uh, unique to Paul. And in fact, Jeremiah has a conversation about this too. We're going to go to Jeremiah chapter 17. And we're going to start in verse 5. Verse 5 says this. This is what the Lord says. Cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans, who rely on human strength and turn their hearts away from the Lord. Verse 6, they are stunted shrubs in the desert with no hope for the future. They will live in the barren wilderness in an uninhabited, salty land. Let's pause there for a second. This is, this is heavy stuff from Jeremiah. But what's he saying? If we, if we put our trust only in humans, let's apply it to our conversation. If we, if we put our trust completely in humankind to define what morality actually is, what Jeremiah would say is that you are like a stunted shrub in the desert with no hope for a future, living in barren wilderness in an uninhabited salty land. It's like you, the life that you, it's going to run out. Like at some point you're going to hit a brick wall. It's not going to go well because humans can't be the thing that we trust in the most. Then he goes on in verse 7. But blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. They are like trees planted along a river bank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by heat or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. Verse 9, and maybe you've heard this one before, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who knows how bad it is? What we might have a conversation about from culture is how humans can decide what morality is. But Scripture actually teaches the opposite. And both Paul and Jeremiah in these passages look at themselves and look at others and say, there's no way that I should be the one deciding what right and wrong is. So then the question is, where does our morality come from? And understanding this from Jeremiah, we would say that morality can't be rooted in anything 
if humans are the standard. Well, why is that? Because I think we would understand, and I think this is just logical, that humans, our, our idea of morality is on a spectrum. So what might be right and wrong in one culture might be completely different in another culture. Okay? Think about this in the most simplistic forms. What you eat here in America might be very different than what you eat somewhere else. So if those little things are different, there might be even bigger differences. And in some cultures, now and even historically like previous, you might have situations where people are sacrificing their children. We would never do that today. Or they might look at a reality, they might look to pillage a village and they would kill the men and then take the women and children as their slaves. We would not look at that in America today and say that's a positive thing. But in other cultures, it would be. And so morality on this spectrum, if we just look to humans, we would see that morality can be something different even just depending on where you live. And so morality can't be rooted in anything if humans are the standard. But what does this mean for Christianity and where do we get our morality from? For Christianity, morality is rooted in God's character and his value of human life. It's rooted in God's character and his value of human life. See, when we look at God, we see love. We see goodness. We see his desire to create and cultivate relationship with us. And so we look at that and we say there's a God that loves us and we want to lean into that. And then he would value human life. Well, why, why do we bring that up? Why is that important? I think much of morality comes down to the fact or comes down to the reality of whether you value other people or not. Let me explain what I mean. Even if you thought about stealing something from a store, if you were to take that thing, what are you saying about the owner of the store? You're saying that their loss in what you're going to steal is less important to you than what you want. So you're not valuing that person. Let me go a different route. Even if you decided to maybe steal some time at work, whatever that means in your workplace, what are you saying about your boss? You're saying, I value my time more than I value your time, and I'm not respecting you as my boss. And so there's a difference there. It's not necessarily a value of life as in taking a life or giving a life, but it, it means that you're looking at somebody else and valuing yourself more. But can I help us understand what, what Jesus did? Jesus defined what it means to value human life. Because of the way that he would interact with people around him, because of the way that he would care for those that he came in contact with and the way that he would live in a way where anybody could come to him, anybody could have a conversation with him, anybody could be healed or uplifted by him. And then even in becoming a human and dying for humans, Jesus defined what it meant to value human life. I want to go to one more passage this morning. It's Matthew 19. And maybe you've heard this passage before, but I want to look at it in a little bit of a different lens. Matthew 19, verse 13, says this, One day, some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could lay his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. Now let's pause again for a minute. When we look at this passage, we rightfully would think, how dare the disciples shoo these children away? Now I get it, right? If the kids are being annoying and whatever, you might say, go play somewhere else, right? But they scolded the parents for bringing them. 
Now, in our culture today, we put a lot of time and energy into our kids. We put a lot of time, energy, and resources into our kids. We want them to have the best experience as a kid, right? So we send them to camps, and we pay for them to go over here, and we find the best school, and we do all this stuff so that we can just think about, we you know get into like travel sports and all kinds of stuff, right? And we pour money into our kids, and we, we continue to live our life sometimes around our kids' schedules, right? And now I'm a parent. I'm not saying it's I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying I do it too. But like this is what we think about. The opposite was true in Jesus' culture. In fact, if you had a child that was born with a disformity, you could just leave them and let them die somewhere. Children were not valued in this culture the way that we value them today. Now parents, these parents valued their kids because they brought them to Jesus. But when the disciples say, get the kids out of here. That was a normal response in this situation. But what does Jesus say in verses 14 and 15? It says, but Jesus said, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these children. And he placed his hands on their heads and blessed them before they left. Not only does Jesus say, let them come to me. Not only does he encourage that, but he says, the kingdom of heaven is going to belong to those who are like these kids. He elevates them. He brings them into the spotlight rather than rushing them away or pushing them off to the side. See, what we know about what Jesus did was he elevated those who were seen as less important. He would hang out with tax collectors, prostitutes. He would go and he would heal lepers even though they were the outcasts. And so Jesus decided that he would be, when he came to earth, he would be the picture of morality and he would elevate what it meant to value other people. There's another quote I want to share with you uh, this morning that comes from a man named Alex Rosenberg. And he, was, uh, he said this in 2012. He wrote an article and answered these questions and he's a philosophy professor at Duke. So again, a, another very smart person, but he just kind of had a series of questions that he answered from an atheist perspective. So the first question is this, and this is the obvious answer. Is there a God? He said no. What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. What is the meaning of life? Ditto, meaning there is none. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. Does prayer work? Of course not. Is there a difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them. Then why should I be moral? Because it makes you feel better than being immoral. So listen, if someone, let's go back to our question, right? If someone were to come to you and say, does religion hinder morality? Does it do more harm than good? The question would be, well, where do you get your standard of morality? Where does it come from? Because what people say, and I know everybody that has this conversation with you may not be an atheist. There's people that would have all kinds of worldviews. But from the perspective of if we just remove religion from the equation, the answer would be that there is no moral difference between right and wrong. Because there's no standard. And so if you decide to be quote-unquote moral, what's your motivation for that? Well, you just want to feel better than if you did the wrong thing. But let's be honest about that for a minute. Doesn't it feel better to do the wrong thing sometimes? 
Doesn't it feel better to go take four donuts when your coworker only got one? Sometimes. So you can't even make that perspective. Like you can't even look at that and say, okay, well, I want to do what's right. That always makes me feel good. Sometimes the opposite is true, and what doing what's wrong makes us feel good. And so the question is this: what What's my morality motivation? What motivates me to do what's right or what's wrong? Is it simply to say, I'm going to feel better because I did what was right? Or for maybe us as Christians, is it that I want to look like Jesus? I want that to be my morality. I want that to be the motivation for why I do what I do. And I think that this is true. The greatest measure of morality is rooted in Jesus. That's where we find what it means to be rooted in morality and understand what morality actually means. So to answer our question, let's go back to that one more time. Does religion hinder morality? I think there's three answers we can kind of come up with. The first one is this. Humans cannot define what is moral because it's a spectrum. Human opinion, human feelings, change all the time, and what is moral today might not be moral tomorrow, or what wasn't moral 30 years ago is moral today. So it's a fluid scale. We can't, we can't define that. There has to be a quote-unquote measuring stick. There has to be something where we say, this is exactly how we figure out what's moral, and it has to be universal for everyone. Humanity doesn't provide that. But Jesus is the great exa- greatest example of what it means to be moral. And so if someone were to have this conversation with you and they were to ask this question, I'm assuming that they would think morality or religion hinders morality because of what they've seen humans do. They've seen people that claim religion do terrible things. And so in their mind, and I get where this is coming from, the the argument makes logical sense to me. They would look at that and say, well, if you took religion away, that person wouldn't have done what was wrong, and therefore we would be better off if religion disappeared. But I think the ironic thing is that that person and a Christ follower could come to the same conclusion, and that conclusion would be that humanity is the greatest hindrance on morality. We as people, because we are sinful people, hinder what it mean, hinder morality in our culture. We make poor decisions. We decide to do wrong things. And someone that looks at religion and says, look at what that person did, and they did it out of a religious experience or religious desire, we would look at that person and say, well, they did it because they're a sinful person. Morality gets hindered because of who we are as humans, because we're imperfect. And the place that we need to look to find what morality means is to the life of Jesus and to see how he lived and to model our lives after that. You know, back in the 90s when I was a kid, there was a fad that went around and everybody had a bracelet that had four letters on it. What was it? WWJD, right? Here's the interesting thing. People that wore that bracelet weren't all Christians. Now, I don't want to judge. I don't know him. I don't, I don't know that he's not a Christian, but Alan Iverson wore a WWJD bracelet, okay? I'm doubting that he's a Christian, but maybe he is, right? We'll get to heaven. We'll find out. I hope he is. 
We can play hoops sometimes, right? But who, who knows, right? People that weren't Christians wore this bracelet. Why? Here's why I think they did. Because if you look at the life of Jesus, you see a moral person. The problem comes, and people ask this question, does religion hinder morality? And specifically to Christianity, they ask this question when they see Christians that don't act like Jesus. That's the problem. If we, and we're not perfect, right? We can't all do this at the same time, all the time. But if we look like Jesus, people might have certain comments about us, but it's not going to be that we're immoral. We're not going to make decisions that make the rest of Christians look bad because Jesus always did what was right. And so the answer to this question just Religion hinder morality, at least from a Christian perspective, is simply that we as humans are sinful people, and Scripture teaches us that. But when we look at the life of Jesus, if we live like him, he's the standard for morality. And so if we live like him, we exist like him, we make decisions like him, maybe you get a bracelet, put it on, remind yourself, then our morality is no longer in question because we look like the most moral person to ever live in history. And that's true no matter who you talk to. There are no accounts of Jesus sinning. There are no accounts of Jesus doing something that was wrong. He always did what was right. And so guess what? Our answer today is very simple. Live like Jesus. And when someone says, does it hinder morality? The, the answer is, well, you know what? I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We screw things up. But the model of what we are called to be is to look like Jesus. And if we do that, our morality will not be in question. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we are thankful for the example that you've given to us and that you came to earth as a human to save humans. And we recognize that we are sinful people, that it is easier for us to do what is wrong a lot of the time than it is for us to do what is right. And we don't make the right choices and we don't do the right thing. And like Paul said, we don't even understand why. We just do it sometimes and go, why in the world did I make that decision? We thank you even in all of that that you decided to come and die for us. And we ask that as we think about this idea of morality that we would not find our definition of morality based in humans, what humans think, what they believe, what they tell us is right, but that we would find our definition of what is right and wrong in you. And that we would do our best to model our lives after what you looked like and the standard that you set. And we thank you that you've clearly laid that out for us and we can even read about it in your word every day. In Jesus' name, amen.